This is episode 279 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, Six Ways to Use a Tactical Flashlight and Why You Should Carry One, and Venezuela Faces the Return of Forgotten Diseases. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 279. Hey, before we jump right in, I have two very quick announcements. The first one uh, actually stems from the first article we are going to read. I've been talking to you about the Survival Hacks Tactical Flashlight and they sent me a coupon code for Prepper Website um, listeners and readers. And uh, it was a, a great little flashlight. I really recommend it. And uh, it's only $9.99 with the, the coupon code. Now, the thing is that this goes to the end. It was only going to go to the middle of March. But uh, you know, after I talked with them, they, they left it open for the whole rest of March. So it's open till the very end of March. You get it for $9.99. I'm going to go ahead and link to it. In the show notes, you get the flashlight, you get the rechargeable battery, and you get the charger. Now, guys, I'm an affiliate. It's an Amazon. I'm an affiliate for it, but I only make like 40 cents, right? So it's not something that I'm pushing to try to earn any kind of money. I just think it's a great deal, and so I'm sharing with uh, sharing that with you. But anyway, our first article talks about tactical flashlights, so I thought, man, this is this is a great uh, time to share that because this is a, it's a thousand lumen flashlight for 9.99. But anyway, uh, so you know, don't miss out on that one. But uh, that's the last time I'm going to talk about that one before uh, before it ends. So I just wanted to send that to you. And then the second thing is I uh, released my latest video on YouTube. It's called DIY Prepper Food Buckets. And so it is an edited version of the Facebook Live. And so it's all the good stuff. And so if you, I'm going to link to it in the show notes as well. If you uh, go to YouTube and you watch videos... Uh, this is, you know, this is why well, I would really appreciate you going and, and watching it and liking the video and subscribing to our channel if you haven't. But uh, this is, you know, if you if you haven't made any food buckets before, this I walk you through the supplies that you need, and then also I walk you through how to do it. It is so easy. It is very affordable. To, I mean, this is affordable long-term food storage, and so greatly would recommend that you go watch that. So, like I said, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into our first article of the podcast. It comes to us from thepreppingguide.com, and it's entitled, Six Ways to Use a Tactical Flashlight and Why You Should Carry One. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. A flashlight might not seem like much at first, considering they are a household item and get used in blackouts at night or to look into dark places. But as an everyday carry tool, tactical flashlights have more uses than you expect, And when you don't have one with you, when you need it, you are left in the dark. I first started carrying a small tactical flashlight when my mobile phone started to develop a severe battery draining issue. I did this as I thought I would try to expand into the tools I use my mobile phone for. And one of those was primarily as a flashlight. After carrying the flashlight for a few weeks, I was growing more and more surprised at how useful it was to have one. Now, while I enjoy the concept of everyday carry, it is my enjoyment of survival gear and multifunctional tools 
that makes the collection of gear I might use every day more fun. But without a doubt, with every mention of EDC gear I have seen, there's always a tactical flashlight involved purely because they are a practical item that can be used in so many various situations. As a child, I used flashlights more as a fun toy rather than a practical preparedness item. It was something I would use to check up on the chickens at night or as a fun game of hide-and-seek in the evening. That use developed more as I learned about the various ways of using a flashlight in the wilderness, from signaling for help or using the lens of a flashlight as a means of starting a fire with sunlight. As flashlights developed, so did my own use with them as I moved on to use them in the military, using their strobe effects attached to a rifle during urban training exercises, and the red light function for light-sensitive field exercises to read maps. In this day and age, tactical flashlights are far more compact than the larger brick lights I would use back when I was a child. And while they might be much smaller, they also pack a lot more lighting power or lumens than what the larger units could previously yield. These new compact flashlight innovations are just an added reason as to why they have a position in everyday carry sets across the world and why they are a very valuable tool for preppers. Tactical flashlights serve a much different purpose to household flashlights. Their history and development has been made to serve a different market. Tactical flashlights were originally developed to be used in conjunction with a firearm to assist with target identification in areas where there is limited lighting. Rather than wielding a separate flashlight, it would allow a marksman or law enforcement, security, or military to aim a weapon and illuminate a target at the same time. For police and security, tactical flashlights were a great innovation as they could offer a concentrated light beam which could temporarily blind an assailant or suspect, assist with target identification, and with the much bigger tactical flashlights such as the mag light, it could be used as a blunt weapon much like a police baton. This field of use meant that tactical flashlights had to be constructed differently as household flashlights are often made of cheaper materials such as plastic and would not be able to provide these same uses for those specific industries. Tactical flashlights would also extend into further military use, whether instances might permit to lower lighting filters to be used, such as red light filters to preserve a person's night vision, as well as being able to illuminate an object. Some tactical flashlights can also be used with infrared filters, which, when used in conjunction with night vision operating equipment, can serve as a marker or illuminate objects or areas to only night vision wearers. This is also used with laser sighting for weapons, which is a standard practice for the military to use precision aiming at night. Tactical flashlights offer a mode of uses that household flashlights don't. One of its best uses is as a self-defense option. As tactical flashlights are not considered weapons in comparison to other self-defense tools, such as prepper spray, they can be carried on to air transport, meaning there is no issue with this item as everyday carry tools for travelers. While I have already listed a few ways to use flashlights, here are some others that you might need one for. So number one is self-defense. How can they be used as a self-defense tool? Primarily, almost all current tactical flashlights are able to concentrate and narrow their field of light into a singular beam. Because tactical flashlights already pack a high lumens, they are incredibly bright. 
so bright, in fact, that they will temporarily blind a person who might be about to attack you or threatening you. This is especially the case if it's nighttime and the attacker's eyes will be more adjusted to lower lighting. Blinding an attacker in this manner will allow you to make an escape, which is the priority in all self-defense scenarios. In a book on Israeli street survival, author Eugene Sokut recommended carrying a small tactical flashlight when walking to the car at night and how to hold the flashlight if an attacker is about to engage you. There are also various other techniques to use a flashlight in defensive positions, such as the FBI technique and the eye index techniques. And he'll, he'll touch on this here in just a minute. The second way is illumination. Tactical flashlights can come in small convenient sizes to carry in your handbag, backpack, or just in your pocket. This means that if you ever find yourself walking home on your own at night and you feel like you might be in danger or just in an area that feels unsafe to you, you can walk with the flashlight in your hands and when your path gets too dark, you can light it up quite easily. With a tactical flashlight and narrowing the beam, it can cover a fairly good distance too. Not only does this help with safety against potential attackers or thieves, but it also helps in ensuring that you are able to walk on a path and know that each step you take won't be an ankle roll or an invisible hole that you would have seen had it been lit up. Number three is in an emergency situation. There's no doubt that when the power goes out, the first thing we all look for is a flashlight. Generally, it's somewhere tucked away in the back of a kitchen cupboard or under the sink, or perhaps you have a blackout kit that you have made up for emergencies like this. For me, I generally keep my flashlight in my pocket, which spares me the effort of fumbling around in the dark and finding furniture with my shins. Number four is starting a fire with a flashlight. This can be done in a few different ways. The first one is only for a survival situation, as it involves breaking the light bulb. This should be done carefully as it is only the outer glass that you want to break, not the inner filament. If your filament is intact, you can use a little bit of tinder in the top of the light around the filament and switch the light on. The second method is to use the protecting glass lens from the cap of the flashlight to magnify the sun during daylight onto tinder. The third method is one that is only available to some tactical flashlights that have highly concentrated lumens. If this is shown onto tinder, it is able to burn a flammable material. And uh, yeah, there are videos on that. Uh, that's kind of crazy, but yeah, that's a lot of lumens on that one. The fifth way is as a utility tool. One of the design specifications of a tactical flashlight is to be sturdy and durable. Many of the current brands of tactical flashlights have versions that are used in law enforcement and military industries. For instance, a large mag light can serve as a weapon because of its hard exterior and thick long handle. However, with the serrated edges that duty-made tactical flashlight come with, they can be used to break through a car window, either to get in or get out of one in a rush. Number six is signaling for help. When it comes to a situation where you might be in an emergency, lost or need to signal drivers on the road for help, the main things we have at our disposal are sound by yelling and movement by waving our hands. However, a flashlight can replace a lot of those functions when they become unusable at night. For instance, while driving on long roads in country areas, I have seen people waving flashlights that might need help. If the situation is safe, I will pull over and help. 
A flashlight is also an essential way of using Morse code or just signaling for help if you are ever lost in the wild. So what makes a good flashlight? Of course, there's no point having a tactical flashlight if it's not durable, bright, or able to maintain its output for long periods of time. In fact, if it wasn't any of those things, you may as well just buy a regular household flashlight. For what we are after, we need to look for a number of things in our flashlight. Having used two great flashlights, I would consider the following to be indicators of a quality flashlight. Extremely bright and powerful lumens. Ability to be focused into a small blinding beam or wide to cover large areas. Constant light brightness for long periods. The overall time before the light begins to fade. The reliable durability of the light itself. Functionality in a wide scope of temperature and weather, water resistant, and a robust body. For personal preferences, you should decide if you want a compact flashlight, which can be used as a weapon in self-defense, or to break glass for escaping a car, for instance. Or if you want to find a flashlight that is more compact, easy to carry, and discreet. Personally, I find something in the middle is the best to have. I have used larger maglite flashlights and I have a smaller compact tactical flashlight which is more akin to the pen light. However, I could not settle for either so I tried something in the middle and was happy with the fact that I could still carry it around every day but still be able to use it as a sturdy tool if needed. Some other considerations which again come down to preference are how the flashlight is constructed. Of course, all tactical flashlights can be durable, tough, and innovative, but there are some design functionalities that I might like that you might not. For instance, I like the flashlight to have its on and off button on the top. This means I can hold it at eye level like an ice pick and switch the flashlight on with my thumb, which is a prime defensive position for the flashlight. I also like the flashlight to have a button that doesn't have to be pressed to have it shine but instead can shine with my thumb pressing into it. This allows me to create my own strobing effect with the flashlight by rapidly tapping the button. One other consideration is the batteries your flashlight takes. For me, I stick with flashlights that only use AA or AAA batteries as they are in almost every convenience store and supermarket and they are found in most other devices that take batteries. So what are the various ways to hold a flashlight? There are a number of techniques that come into play depending on the situation with flashlights. For most, the favorable option of holding a flashlight tends to be either in the ice pick position at eye level or in the underarm position as if you had just pulled it out of your pocket. There are a number of other ways to hold a flashlight which we will go into a little more detail below. While these techniques are primarily to be used in conjunction with shooting a weapon, they can also be used without a gun when you are in a defensive stance or in a possible attacker situation. The first one is the FBI technique. This technique is to ensure that if anyone is going to take aim at you, then they will shoot the light as that is where they think you are coming from. The method is to hold the flashlight away from your body out to one side and up with your non-shooting hand. While this technique might seem like an innovative idea, it is better for search situations as once you fire a shot, your gun's muzzle flash will give away your position. And so there is some, uh, there, there are pictures here just kind of giving you the idea of what they're talking about as far as the techniques go. The next one is the neck index position. 
Neck index allows you to transition from the FBI technique to shooting because there are minor flaws with stability and accuracy in holding the flashlight out with one arm in the FBI technique. The neck index requires that you draw the flashlight in as you start firing. With this position, you can transition to a flashlight position that would stabilize a weapon with two hands for more accurate shooting. The next one is the Harry's technique. The Harry's technique uses a more stable firing position for a pistol as the firing hand rests on the hand holding the flashlight. This method allows the firer to simultaneously aim and illuminate or blind a target. The next one is the surefire technique. This technique requires a much smaller flashlight as it is held between the index finger and the forefinger much like a syringe. The rest of the hand provides cupping around the grip of the pistol as it would if you were not holding a flashlight at all. This position adds a lot more stability to the firing position and a stronger grip for recoil issues. If the flashlight is too large, the light will naturally point towards the ground which will still illuminate targets but will not provide the blinding effect that a smaller flashlight would. So what are some good tactical flashlights? There's no doubt that there are a lot of tactical flashlight manufacturers out there, but there are definitely some that are better than others. And I am not just talking about expensive Porsche brands either. I deem a brand to be pretty good if they can make a $20 flashlight that easily competes against a $200 flashlight, and there are plenty out there, which is why it pays to shop around. So which tactical flashlight would I recommend for you to take a look at? I am only going to recommend the ones that I have used, specifically for the reason that while there are a lot of good ones out there, I haven't used them outdoors to do arduous tasks, but for the three that I have used, I can say that they all performed very well. Why did I go through three flashlights? As mentioned before, my first flashlight was the Maglite 3 cell flashlight. While it is significantly larger, 12.3 inches, it is a bright, long-lasting, durable flashlight that is able to be used as a self-defense tool and utility. Because I found this more so as a household tactical flashlight rather than one suitable for everyday carry, I decided to branch out into much more compact flashlights. However, I would definitely recommend this one for the car or the house as a heavy-duty flashlight. The two flashlights I went for that were a little more compact than the Maglite were the Phoenix PD35 and the J5 Tactical V1 Pro. I bought both of these as I was after a flashlight that was more compact and more suitable as an everyday carry item. The Phoenix is a 5.4 inch and the V1 Pro is just under 4 inches, so they were quite similar in sizing. I first took an interest in the Phoenix as I had friends who used the same flashlight and it is a flashlight that would be a bit more investment but for a bit more quality. It cost me just under $80. I also picked up the V1 Pro at the same time as it is a very cheap flashlight at less than $15 and has a lot of great reviews but it is nowhere near as bright as the Phoenix and was not a brand I had recognized. Aside from being a considerable difference in pricing between the Phoenix and the V1 Pro, the Phoenix was a 1000 lumen flashlight while the V1 Pro was a 300 max lumen. This means that the Phoenix is able to create a considerably more powerful light beam and have that blinding effect. Don't get me wrong, the V1 Pro can still deliver quite an impact and is still a very bright light. But in terms of strength, the Phoenix has its hand down. 
The Fenix distance can hit out to well over 600 feet, while the V1 Pro struggles to make half of that, which just goes to show that the extra money, what the extra money would buy. Despite the comparisons I was able to make between the Fenix and the V1 Pro, I will say that as EDC flashlights, they both serve their purpose in illuminating dark areas, being a compact, multifunctional flashlight, and being able to be used in a variety of ways as well as having that function of producing a blinding self-defense light, having a tough, durable shell, and being able to last a long time. The stark difference between the two being the fact that the Fenix is considerably more powerful than the V1 Pro is a reason to make the extra expense, but this is something you would have to think about in your own prepper budget. I hope this helps you with any information you required on flashlights and more specifically tactical flashlights. If you have any more questions or are interested in the topic and want to talk a little further about them, pop a comment in down below. All right, so just a couple of just observations here. The uh, the J5 or the V1 Pro that he was talking about looks like a mini Cree. I know that I've linked to those before on Prepper website uh, to Amazon, and I have a few of those. Uh, you know they're you know pretty cheap. You can get them for sometimes you can find them for three ninety nine, anywhere from three ninety nine to seven ninety nine, and uh, they have a little clip on there so you can put them in your in your pocket. Um, it might not be the you know exactly like the Mini Cree, but it looks like it. And I have I use the Mini Cree all the time uh, just around the house, but I also uh, use the uh, the ones that look exactly like. Uh, the the ones from Survival Hacks as well. The uh, the other one, the Fenix PD35. Um, you know that one. You know it looks kind of looks like a lightsaber almost <laughs> when you look at it. So uh, it probably isn't a very long lightsaber looking. You know he I think he said it was like 4.5 uh, inches or something along those lines or 5.4 inches. But uh, it looks it looks cool. But um, you know you'll have to go check those out. And there's links to these uh, flashlights. As, as well as others here in the, in the article, other links in the article. But definitely come check this one out because, you know, when you think about flashlight, you just think about, you know, illuminating the dark. You don't think about, you know, if you're in a scary part of town or whatever, having that flashlight ready for you. If you are, I mean, some of you live in cities that you can't have a, a firearm, right? But if you had one, a thousand lumen flashlight, and you were, you know, you had it out and ready and someone was coming up to you and you just, you weren't sure, you know, what they were going to do. You could, you know, put it in their face really quickly and blind them. And it does, it does cause you to shrink back. Uh, just, you know, using that here in the house, I know that we've ha had that effect uh, on, on when we've shined it at people. We don't try to like do it in people's eyes on purpose, but it does have that effect. So at least blind them very quickly so you can try to run away and get away from them. So it's a good article over here at thepreppingguide.com. Definitely check it out. Like always, I will link to it in the show notes. Our next article comes to us from theorganicprepper.com. And uh, again, this is an article from uh, J.G. Martinez, who is in Venezuela and uh, had some family issues with diseases. And so he's sharing his uh, what's going on and his experiences over there. The title of this article is Venezuela faces the return of forgotten diseases. And you know, you you would think that in our modern age, in our modern day, that uh, you know a city, not a city, a country like Venezuela, who years ago was, I mean, a beautiful country. People would go to vacation there. 
Um, there's no reason why they should be having the problems that they have. But people are dealing with sicknesses and diseases that once were eradicated for the most part. And so you're going to find out some of those reasons why they feel that uh, you know, some of their family members were sick and uh, the, the situation the way it is in Venezuela right now. And so uh, let's go ahead and dig right into this one. Again, coming to us from The Organic Prepper. And let me say this right uh, before I get started. You know, this is being written by someone whose English is a second language. And so uh, there are some times where um, the English, I, I try to correct as much as I can, but sometimes it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't go, it doesn't flow. So just a FYI on that one. I'm going to try to read it like it's written down, just uh, kind of for the effect, the same way I do when I read Selko's articles. All right, so here we go. Dear fellows, I want to tell a little story of this last week. My son had a rash in his little armpits and other parts. So his mom took him to the doctor. Within walking distance from our subdivision, our SUV is still busted. After the subsequent blood test, according to my wife, it was a real spectacle. He's a strong kid and a task force between my wife, the doctor, and a nurse was needed to get the blood sample. Well, at least we know he is able to defend himself. The lab results freaking expensive because the reactants are scarce, was salmonella. I started to worry a lot as it is logical. That was Thursday. I got immediately into fast forward mode and found the money while I was extremely concerned about the availability of the needed antibiotics. My wife woke up early and with a neighbor in his car went with the kiddo to the pharmacy. After visiting two pharmacies with negative results, they headed up to a state-owned pharmacy next to the state hospital, controlled by Cubans or party members who betray the hospital personnel that dare to report malnutrition, deaths, or similar events. This is happening. She was finally able to find the medicine on Saturday morning at a really inflated price, but the neighbor worked for an official government with a flash of his badge. She could buy them without the employees giving it a second look. I emailed a copy of the doctor's report to Daisy so she can confirm my history for those who feel the need to do so. To me, this was a major achievement under the actual circumstances. I used some of the money from your donations to exchange it for the needed bolivars to buy the medication, but the important thing to note here is that they were found, and that is not easy in this country. Recent reports from these last few days have been for someone who understands the importance of the endemic diseases that had been under control or spreading quickly. I'm talking about serious stuff, tuberculosis, diphtheria, leishmaniasis. There have been adults and children who died because of these things. The diseases themselves under normal conditions can be healed, but without the appropriate medications and proper nutrition, they become deadly. One of the worst endemic diseases that has been reported, this information arrived via social networking from a confirmed known source, is leishmaniasis. This is a parasite to which you should pay a lot of attention. With a lack of proper balanced feeding, a person's natural defenses get lower and it is much easier for them to get sick. Traditionally, there was programs all over the country to fumigate and keep the vectors under control. However, the last fumigation was a long time ago, and this allowed the vectors to spread themselves again, reaching densely populated areas and now without any modern medication to control it. Rodents, canines are affected too. 
The main transmission vector is the mosquito, and their first manifestation is a skin lesion in the place of the bite. There are several forms of the disease, and most of them are deadly. This is a disease associated with malnourishment, population displacement, poor living conditions, weak immune systems, and a general lack of resources. This is the exact scenario we have been living through and the description of an SHTF situation. It affects the liver and has permanent consequences if not treated properly. Another disease we have present in our area is urlichiosis, a tropical variation of Lyme disease. Fortunately, we can find the antibiotics for this as well, but of course at incredible prices. Thankfully, with a second income, it could be obtained. My wife got better after weeks of feeling sick once we knew what it was. In a funny side note, we had to go to a veterinarian lab as it was the only one in town that was able to do such testing. This gave me floor for a lot of imaginative, creative jokes to her, lol. We used the recipe to buy some extra blisters packs of medication just in case for our medicine box will be donated once the family can come with me. Another disease that has an incredible increase is tuberculosis. It is known that tuberculosis is linked to malnutrition, and it is becoming increasingly widespread in Venezuela. As it is more or less known, improper nutrition is the main course of this once eradicated sickness in Venezuela. The cases were very few and widely spread, mainly among drug addicts, homeless people, or even patients of psychiatric hospitals. This is a bacteria and the infection damage is located especially in lungs. A weakened immune system makes it easy for the disease to take hold. There are a lot of ways to prevent our defense from getting too low, but proper nutrition is the best prevention. Whole foods, of course, provide more leverage to our immune system than processed foods. Another important and significant increase has been in the mosquito-transmitted diseases. With the main insecticides factories financially strangled, their production is scarce, and the well-known government mafia takes over whatever they can. Finding a can of insecticide is not easy. This is another item that should be stockpiled. It is not going to lose efficiency. I could afford to buy a fumigation machine able to provide a clouding of droplets with a very small size, the needed size to float in the air for hours. I don't remember how many microns, I think about 0.5 or so. It is useful for house fumigation as well as greenhouse or crops, despite being electrical. It does not use a heating element, so it is much more simple to maintain and fix. And this allows to use a wider variety of insecticides that do not need to be burned to remain as a cloud for keeping their effectiveness. Okay, guys, I don't know. I think maybe the uh, the language barrier there is causing some... Uh, some uh, confusion possibly in you know what is he exactly when he's saying insecticides uh, when he's talking about in in the greenhouse and things like that. I mean, is he talking something as simple as uh, putting down some some powder uh, you know on on the ground or I mean he's talking about actually spraying something. So you know, is it organic? I know a lot of you who garden probably would be like, well, no, we wouldn't do that at all. But uh, you know, he is dealing with the mosquitoes and mosquitoes carrying. Uh, diseases that uh, you know that that can you know, can hurt you, and they're lucky right now that they're able to find the medicine uh, that they did find. But other people are not, uh, as you've read the reports and you've seen the videos and things like that coming out of Venezuela. I mean, people are dying left and right. All right, so let's continue on. 
Our recent experience with salmonella last week opened our eyes to how bad sanitation conditions have become. Of course, this is to be expected. There are no cleaning products as affordable prices and therefore the hygiene decreases significantly and salmonella is a disease very closely linked to hygiene. According to my research for this article, salmonella can be transmitted by infected hens even before the eggshell is formed and this seemed to us something very likely because the chicken farmers can't afford the mandatory vaccines or medications for the animals. Another salmonella infection source is raw poultry. We notice that in the place we buy our fresh poultry and cheese, these are stored in the same freezer. This is not what we could call ideally sanitary, but it is our first time facing such an illness. According to our doctor, that same day there were two other cases of salmonella before our son. This is alarming to me. Never had seen even one case except very rare instances and suddenly three persons in a row in a doctor's office. This is highly suspicious at a minimum. So what can we do given that we are not regular people but preppers? Let's see. My first thought is, given that the readers are spread worldwide, is research that diseases are endemic to your area. Statistically speaking, the probability of picking up a disease that is not typical for your region should be low. Once the hazard your group may be exposed to is identified, then proceed with the neutralization measures by finding out which medication would be needed if the normal supply is no longer available. Some prepper-friendly doctors could extend the needed prescriptions and your stashed medications would be of the stuff that should be already in your secluded BOL under the proper conditions. That's bug out location. Under the proper conditions. Alternatively, if you can't get those, look for herbal remedies you can create yourself. And then Daisy has a little side note here. This book is a reference every prepper should own. And um, when you go to it, it's going to, uh, to Amazon and it's Herbal Rem- Remedies by Kat Ellis. And uh, I know her from the preparedness community. I, I haven't bought that uh, book, but I did it today. So I have that one coming in from Amazon. So that might be a link that you might be interested in. Given what we have experienced, I would not try to save money on this issue. It will be worth every penny if you need it. Oh, and I don't work or have any relationship with any medical company other than swallowing their stuff from time to time if needed. This said, I would calculate depending on the medical history of the family. For example, urinary infections, bacterial stomach infections like amoebas in my case, and the endemic diseases information, then go about stockpiling two complete treatments a year for each family member. Other possible treatments could be those for botulism. Some antidote against this toxin should be stockpiled. This is very serious and the probability of appearing is not because it is endemic, but because of things like decomposing canned food. Skin burn ointments and other common medications would be needed too. Our scarcity began about four years ago, but mostly because of the inflation. If you have the money, you can find anything you need, even under these conditions. Therefore, I strongly suggest you find a good, suitable way optimized for your particular condition to store wealth. This is worst case scenario and you may adjust it to your own medical knowledge and location. It would be great to receive comments from people in the know. I give special thanks to those who have prayed for my family because your prayers, my fellow preppers, really worked. I don't have words to describe how grateful I am for all of you. We faced this issue, came through the other side almost unharmed, knowing this could have become serious if the medicines were not found, and I am sure your prayers for us were heard. 
I don't have words to thank you. God bless you all, people. Jose. All right. Okay, so going back to definitely, you know, I think I've mentioned it before on on uh, the podcast. I remember seeing, I don't know if it was National Geographics or some documentaries about how uh, parks and wildlife people will go out and they throw, I guess, food out in the wild so that animals that are out there, it's, it's food that has um, medicine that curbs rabies and different things like that so that rabies just doesn't run wild out there in the wild. And so, you know, they'll, they'll use a helicopter and they'll throw food out, you know, whatever, you know, it's, I don't know, it's packaged in a way that it will, it would survive so that the animals can find it. But I remember seeing that. And then we also have, I know in, in Houston, they, um, they're always spraying for, uh, for mosquitoes. I know people don't like it. Um, and, and definitely we don't like it. There was even reports of them spraying over above using, um, using planes and you know, people were complaining about bees and all that kind of stuff. Completely understand that, and I do agree with them. But there are certain things that the government has put in place to help curb the effects of mosquitoes. So d- definitely, they could be, you know, whether we like them or not, it, it's being done. And so it does curb the mosquito population and, and the diseases that could be spread that way. So if there was a situation where none of that was happening. Um, you know, you, you can imagine what would be going on as far as the, the diseases and uh, the sanitary issues. I mean, when I was reading that sanitary issue earlier, you know, I was uh, getting prepared for the podcast. I was thinking about, you know, all the ways that you can make um, you can make cleaners at home just with basic supplies. I mean, you can go buy all the cleaners and spend all of that money, but there's ways of doing it. And sometimes vinegar and some essential oils and other things that you can put inside of, of those, you can make your own uh, cleaning agents that would be just as powerful. And maybe that's something we need to do for the, maybe like for the Friday podcast uh, and uh, talk a little bit of some of those, some of those household cleaners that we can make. So I was kind of thinking a little bit of, about that. And then I was thinking when he was talking about, uh, you know, spend, don't be cheap on this, spend the money uh, for medicines and for that first aid is on on the antibiotics. And so I know some of you are new, so this is going to rock your world. Uh, if this is the first time that you've heard it, this still kind of rocks the world of people in the preparedness community because I have read articles recently where people are like, uh, they just, they don't want to even consider this. But fish antibiotics are the same as human antibiotics. And I know people don't want, want to hear, some people don't want to hear that. And some of you for the first time, like what? Fish take antibiotics. They don't take antibiotics like we take antibiotics. But in order to keep, you know, different kind of diseases and things off of the fish, you would probably, you would uh, release a a capsule full of antibiotics into the water every so often. But here's the deal. And uh, I trust Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Nurse Amy has an article uh, back in the day where she went to go visit a place that, um, that did antibiotics that, you know, they, they put, put them together, they packaged them, they, they created a manufacturer, all that kind of stuff. Right. And there was no difference between human antibiotics and fish antibiotics. The only difference is the packaging. So when the company gets ready to make fish mocks, right? Amoxicillin, 
that's the that's the the fish version of uh, of uh, antibiotics for adults. Uh, when they get ready to do fish mocks, they don't auto, all of a sudden turn off all their instruments and all their all the all the the factory and say, "Okay, guys, we've stopped producing for adults. Now let's start producing for fish, right?" And so they clean up everything, and then uh, they go ahead and start making antibiotics for fish. And then after they create that for a while, and they they have a nice stockpile, they they don't say, "Okay, guys, we're going to stop." Uh, making fish antibiotics we're going to go back to human antibiotics and so clean up your areas and let's start making human antibiotics they're the same exact thing and so uh that's why you have certain places like camping survival sell it i have uh you know others on uh if you want to go more along the route as you know actually purchasing from a doctor i do have links on the right column of prepper website in the text links where you can buy, and I believe it says antibiotics for SHTF, and you can go and you'll that that takes a little bit more uh, effort as far as providing medical history um, when you when you do order those, but you can you can order those, but you can also order them from CampingSurvival.com and uh, you know get what you need there. Now uh, I always recommend to you always 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 it's the first book that you should get as a prepper. You need to get Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Handbook. And in that handbook, there is a whole chapter on fish antibiotics. And so they talk about it. They talk about what the equivalents of uh, adult antibiotics and fish antibiotics are. And uh, you can kind of go right off of that. They also have herbal remedies and and different things like that in the new updated version, uh, which came out about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, but definitely that is a book that you need. So if you want some more information there, or you can go to Prepper website, go to the tag cloud or search antibiotics and you will find uh, a lot of information there as well. But uh, the, the one place where it's going to be really concise and you can get all the information is, is going to be in that survival medicine handbook. But that is something to consider. I mean, would you want to have antibiotics if, if you were in a situation where your family, a family member was sick and it was something that could be deadly, how much would antibiotics be worth to you, right? Even if you were to purchase some and you put them away and you would just you know just stockpile them away somewhere and you never really used them. You know, when you got sick and you went to the doctor and they gave you antibiotics and you went to the pharmacy and you used that and you just used that in case the poop really hit the fan. How valuable would it be? Now here's the thing about medicine. Medicine does not, unless we're talking about liquid, medicine does not expire. All it does is loses its potency. So if, you know, when when they tell you that uh, medication, when you go to the pharmacy and they have an expiration date of a year on there, when the clock strikes midnight, there's not something in that medicine that automatically says, oh, I'm no good anymore. No, all it does is start losing its potency as it goes. And there's been some studies, even the the, the military has done studies, where a lot of medicine was viable even five years past was still as potent. And so definitely the the, big pharma does not want you. They want you to throw away your medicine so you can go back to the doctor and get another prescription so you can buy more. They don't want you to, you know, keep it in in your cupboard and go to it whenever you need it, right? So just wanted to throw that out to you. How valuable would it be if you had some fish antibiotics or you had some medicine? Um, definitely there are medicines that you should 
that you should stockpile anyway. And just like we do our food pantries first in, first out, there are some that you should do that with medicine as well, first in, first out, and whatever it might be, because uh, you never know when, if you ever go, so here's the, here's the deal. Next time you go to the pharmacy, take a look at the shelves and see how deep their medicine really goes. You will, you will notice that like if you go and you get something for allergy relief or you're getting some Benadryl or some Sudafed or even some, uh, some ibuprofen or stuff, you will see that it does not go very far back on the shelves. Sometimes it's two or three deep and that's it. And so if there was ever a poop hit the fan situation and people were running, of course, people are going to run to the stores and they're going to empty those out. And people are going to run to the pharmacies and they're going to empty those out. Think those are going to be emptied out even faster than grocery stores would be. Think about it. And the medical supplies that they have, if you wanted to stockpile, if you're going to wait to stockpile then, those medical supplies, like, you know, when when the Ebola thing was going on and right before it really got started and people started panicking, right? I, I looked to see what they had and they had one box of N95 masks. That was it. One box. And can you imagine? I mean, you know, so anybody who wanted it at that time, I mean, there wouldn't be anything there. So definitely medical prep is one of those things that, you know, you should stockpile. Those, if it's medical prep like N95 mask and nitrile gloves and, 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 and bandages and gauze, and that stuff never goes bad. It, you know, just as long as you keep it in a place where, uh, you know, you, it's not going to be extremely too, too hot. If it's, you know, some kind of bandage material, sticky tape or whatever, you know, but even, you know, bandages and N95 masks and things like that. Yeah, that can be in a tote in the garage if you if you needed the space. If you need it, you have it. And if you don't need it, you're still going to need it eventually with, with medical. I mean, that's all just the way it is. And so anyway, just a, a, a lot of things to think about here on this one. Um, it was funny because at church, we talked about both of these things, actually. We were talking about Venezuela, and we were talking about uh, diseases as well. Um, and, uh, the toilet paper issue with Venezuela came up. And uh, man, if you're in the Houston area and you are looking, you know, you, you don't go to church, or you're looking for a church, let me know. I mean, we do have some people. We're not, we don't outright all, you know, we're not a prepper church, but definitely people that are a little bit more favorable to preparedness. Definitely we don't have a problem talking about it. But anyway, I think it's stuff that, you know, people realize how important it is um, that things were, you know, are, are very, very bad over there. And we don't want to be in a situation like that. And it, it's, it, it's very sad because we're over here in complete comfort and there's people dying like right now, just like right now in this last minute, someone died in Venezuela, most likely because of starvation, malnutrition, some disease, and they didn't have to die. You know, that government is just so corrupt and the people can't do anything about that uh, because they just they, they have no way of fighting back. And so it's crazy. We'll have to see what happens. And we're continuing watching what happens over there in Venezuela. So definitely keep Jose and his family and all the people in Venezuela and all the people in other countries that are just suffering under governments who are so uh, tyrannical that, you know, they don't they care more about themselves uh, and, you know, living high and they don't care about their people at all. They just look at them as numbers and slaves and uh, they don't care if they, they live or die. 
And so we need to keep people like that in our prayers. And uh, definitely, uh, you know, I just I just talked about church, but, you know, pray that prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. All right. So that's uh, again, it was like preaching to you. Right. Some of you are probably feeling really uncomfortable. Sorry. That's, uh, that's who I am. Um, so that was at the organic Again, uh, Venezuela faces the return of forgotten diseases. All right, guys, that's it for episode 279. I appreciate you spending time with me here on the podcast. Hey, I'm looking forward to even more this week because this is just fun for me. And I hope it's fun for you. And I hope you're learning a lot. And I hope you are adding to your preparedness. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.